Our reading today comes from 2 Samuel 1, 27 through, or 17 through 27. Then David sang this funeral song for Saul and his son Jonathan. David ordered everyone in Judah to learn the song of the bow. In fact, it's written on the scroll from Jashar. Oh no, Israel, your prince lies dead on your heights. Look how the mighty warriors have fallen. Don't talk about it in Gath. Don't bring good news of it to uh, Ashkelon's streets, or else the Philistine's daughter will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. You hills of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain on you and no fields yielding grain offerings. Because it was there that the mighty warrior's shield was defiled, the shield of Saul, never again anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never wavered from the blood of the slain, from the gore of the warriors. Never did Saul's sword return empty. Saul and Jonathan, so well loved, so dearly cherished. In their lives and in their deaths, they were never separated. They are faster than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. He dressed you in crimson with jewels. He decorated your clothes with gold jewelry. Look how the mighty warriors have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies dead on your heights. I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan. You are so dear to me. Your love was more amazing to me than the love of a woman. Look how the mighty warriors have fallen. Look how the weapons of war have been destroyed. It's the word of the Lord. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my hearts be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So a couple years ago, Jeff uh, Crawford and I were attending a church conference. And we got to the initial meeting right off the road. Like we came in, changed our shirt, walked into a meeting that was already started. And we found only a couple seats uh, left next to a really peculiar Canadian fellow. He was, like, dressed really peculiarly. Like, he kind of had one of those, like, Nashville nudie suits on, like, black with, like, the, uh, the like, roses embroidered very ornately with, like, some sparkle. Uh, and, and, like, these are pastors, right? Like, it was, it was strange. And we got there in the middle of a sharing prompt about novel things your church community has attempted or participated in to try to engage with your neighbors, to try to answer some of the questions the people around you are asking. And right off the bat, Jeff and I exchanged glances as our new neighbor passionately chimed in and kind of took over the conversation. He described a phenomenon that I, I went and I looked up, and it's cropping up here and there all over Europe and in North America. Uh, when I went and looked at this, an NPR story I later heard, there was an interview with the founder of this, of this movement, this phenomenon. This guy was a self-described death entrepreneur. And he was talking to NPR about his idea for upstart death cafes. Death cafes. You see, the reason when people in the West have a hard time, that we do everything in our power to try to avoid experiencing, to try to avoid talking about one half of the most unavoidable things in our life. Like, we'll sit around and talk about taxes, but we won't talk about death. The gentleman in the, in the NPR story says, when people sit down to talk about death, 
the pretense kind of falls away. And people talk very openly and authentically. And they say things in front of strangers which are really profound and beautiful. And for English people to do that, this guy was British, for English people to do that with our traditional stiff upper lip is very rare. So death cafes. Our scripture passage today sits right at the hinge of the David story. 2 Samuel 1. It shows our hero David with a far less stiff, stiff upper lip than the typical Englishman. For most of the summer, we've been journeying through this David story. It's a story of an imperfect, blue-collar, spirit-anointed king navigating into the difficult waters of walking with God in real life. We've seen David step right squarely into his calling, becoming the shepherd of Israel, capital S, with both a a vigilance and a tenderness that only a former literal shepherd could possess. We've seen David struggle with keeping his center, needing to be interrupted. He he needed to be de-escalated by Abigail as he had to suffer fools. We've also seen David act generously. Stephanie talked about this last week. Unreasonably so. Towards straggler foreigners and his own motley crew. We've seen David's magnetism. Jonathan, David's armor bearer. Saul's daughter, uh, Michael. They all pledged their allegiance. They pledged their whole selves to David. And we've seen David on the run from his former mentor, Saul, who's threatened by David's charisma, threatened by his election, that God might choose him. In all these things, all these little episodes of David's life, we've seen kind of faint figures of Jesus emerge, as if hidden, as if buried, anticipated. They're not quite yet there in Christ. Following Saul and Jonathan's violent deaths and and Saul elects to fall on his own sword rather than to be uh, sacked by his enemies. Our story zooms in on David as he tearfully receives the report of these deaths. We find David display an amazing amount of emotional depth here. He sings out a funeral song and teaches it to his nation. The NRSV translates this to David intoned a a lamentation. This sort of David response of mourning through song was taken up by uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, the music director of the New York Philharmonic, when he heard of, of JFK's assassination years ago. He was in the middle of a meeting and he wrote a note in response. He said, this will be our reply to such violence to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more uh, devotedly than ever. More intensely, more beautifully, and more devotedly than ever. But given what we find in the world of the the Bible and the life of David, we, we might also add to that formulation in reply to death that we might make music even more honestly than ever before. This is a call for us to be honest. This hits our ears with a little bit of discomfort, even as 
we as Americans are gaining far too much experience with national tragedy, even as we've seen our leader over and over try to, try to mourn publicly and lead us in that public mourning. Even though all that experience, we personally would rather not. We'd rather move on. We'd rather think happy thoughts and send positive vibes at the victims. If we were in charge like David, we'd probably give a nod to these major uh, deaths, but then we'd probably jump right towards the coronation. Now David would be king. We might even be tempted, if we were David, to interpret Saul's death as a relief, even an answered prayer. After all, Saul's been chasing him around in caves, swinging swords at him, throwing spears. But David's sad, sad song instead gathers up Israel's ability to grieve well. It's centered in David. This morning song for the mighty warriors who have fallen is but one of many songs that David's written. We have them gathered up in our book of Psalms. Many of those are written by David. Keep in mind that some scholars even count as many as approximately 70% of our psalms in the Bible are lament psalms. Not exactly like bedside material, right? When we think of psalms, we think it's light reading and kind of fluffy. This, I think, means that Christian radio stations' promises for music, that they only play music that is positive and encouraging, that that's kind of a novel innovation for Christian music or for, for the songs of God's people. A recent web article I, I read it researched uh, the top 50 Christian contemporary music CCM songs of the, each of the last five years. And it found that in these songs, they would always pair concepts. So they'd pair grace and sin. And in these songs, grace was mentioned two and a half times as often as sin. And then there were more than eight times as mentions of the word life as in the mention of death. And love pops up seven more times than fear. The author of this web article quips, for the record, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear is not exactly, it's advice for spiritual formation, but it's not uh, advice for lyric writing, right? Unlike Israel's king, we shy away from this sad sort of song that accounts for sin and death and fear in our midst, like right at our hand. Or even the prospect that these things could happen to us. We're neither prepared for them to happen to us or uh, sometime in the future are able to deal with them when they're right in our way in the present. And I've experienced this aversion firsthand I remember years ago, Rachel and I were at this wedding that she was in, and I was sitting around for the rehearsal. And the only thing worse than a rehearsal for a wedding that you're in is a rehearsal for a wedding that you're not in. Um, but it, it was interesting. In their, this is a great Christian couple, and in their, in their wedding, one of the songs, maybe even the song that they walked down the aisle to, was, one of the, was the first song of the set that we sang, uh, Blessed Be the Name. And the, so they... They had musicians there. They were playing through it really fast. And they got to the part of you give and take away, you give and take away. And, and the bride, like, stop. We're not going to do that part. 
we're only going to do the blessed be the name of the Lord part, right? We're not going to do the give and take away part because that's not wedding material. <laughs> I was really scandalized by that and gave Rach quite an earful of something she had no responsibility for. <laughs> but it's important, right? Because what, what songs we sing reveal a great bit about who we are what we love and where we're headed. These laments witness to the fact that we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8.28. That we are God's beloved sons and daughters. What we love is God and his kingdom. And where we're headed is into a, a calling according to his purpose. Even in the midst of pain and suffering. Maybe even especially in the midst of pain and suffering. In the Psalms we, we find an example, we find a pattern for this sort of textured and complicated worship. That we can somehow cry out to God about injustice happening all around us or the tragedy that just happened while we're, we're shifting towards hope and healing. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 30, it's a, it's a David psalm uh, for the dedication of the temple. Uh, at different times in the psalm, he starts with, I exalt you, Lord, because you pulled me up. You didn't let my enemies celebrate over me. Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you healed me. You brought me up from the grave brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. You who are faithful to the Lord, sing praises to him. Give thanks to his holy name. His anger lasts only for a second, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping might stay for the night, but in the morning, joy. You changed my mourning to dancing. You took off my funeral clothes and dressed me up Enjoy, so that my whole being might sing praises to you and never stop, Lord. I will give thanks to you forever. Or Psalm 86, it starts, Lord, listen closely to me and answer me because I'm poor and in need. He's in the thick of it. Guard my life because I'm faithful. Save your servant who trusts in you. My God, have mercy on me, Lord, because I cry out to you all day long. This is pretty desperate situations. But then it shifts. It moves towards, teach me your way, Lord, so that I can walk in your truth. Make my heart focused only on honoring your name. I give thanks to you, my Lord, my God, with all my heart. And I'll glorify your name forever because your faithful love towards me is awesome. And because you've rescued my life from the lowest part of hell, even in the middle of suffering and fear, even with death at the door. Before we leave these songs with only that last sweet taste of victory in our mouth, that it cancels the previous bitterness of fear or the saltiness of tears of loss, Let's consider that in the course of these lament songs, the conditions within the psalms don't really change a whole lot. Like there's, there's this wild swing from despair towards hope, but not a whole lot of evidence that a whole lot changed in between. It's not that those things have actually yet happened. 
How freeing is it to be able to sing these sorts of songs? Songs that say, blessed be the name of the Lord, even as they brokenly grieve all that has been lost and all that's been taken away. We're afforded the chance to to process on the fly in front of God. We don't have to go somewhere and figure it all out and then say the right words to God. We process on the fly a whole spectrum of emotions. I mean, if David could do it, and it's in our Bibles he did that, I think we can do that. I think we have license. My Old Testament professor says about this, she says, when you lament in good faith, opening yourself to God honestly and fully, that's the invitation here, is to open yourself to God honestly and fully. No matter what you have to say, then you are begging to clear the way for praise. You are straining toward the time when God will turn your tears into laughter. When you lament, you're asking God to create the conditions in which it will become possible for you to offer praise. Conditions, it turns out, that are mainly within your own heart. That's, what, that's the door that lament can open up for us. In this song, David is able to sing a sad, conflicted song about the man who was his boss. Saul was his mentor. Saul was his friend, but he grew increasingly erratic, paranoid. He, he grew violent towards David. And David grieved Saul, but I think David also grieved how badly his relationship with Saul went. And then there's Jonathan. Perhaps David's also conflicted here. He says, I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan. You are so dear to me. Your love was more amazing to me than the love of a woman. He was conflicted with his inability to be the friend to Jonathan that Jonathan had pledged to be to him. A few weeks ago we talked about how Jonathan bound up his life with David. He was conflicted that Jonathan was necessarily torn apart by this blood allegiance to Saul, even as his heart and his political allegiance was with David. In each of these, David processes and aims his hurts and his regrets to the Lord. The king of Israel's messy lamentation begins to unravel the messiness of Israel's life in the presence of the Lord. It's in these tears. It's in the despair. It's in the the grappling that David leans towards hope. It's in death that his prayers and songs grasp at resurrection. This reminds me of the story in in John's Gospel of Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It's here that we find every smart Alex's favorite sword drill Bible verse, right? Because it's really succinct and profound. Jesus wept. Like if you can't memorize any Bible, you can memorize Jesus wept. It's here that we find that lament is grace. Let me repeat that. Lament is grace. It's here that we find the, the coming king mourns his dead friend with gratuitous tears. I say they're gratuitous not because they were fake, but because, as Mako Fujimura writes, 
Tears are useless, even wasteful, if you possess the power to cause miracles to happen like Jesus. Indeed, Jesus made himself vulnerable. He stopped to feel the sting of death to identify with frail humanity, our frail humanity, who struggles to know hope. It's in these tears, then, that, that Mary's response is ignited, a, a, an elaborate and wasteful, tearful display in the next chapter when she comes upon Jesus and falls at his feet and breaks a jar of her life savings. And Jesus interprets this display as necessary. It's, it's beautiful. It's worthy of telling and retelling. Mary, quote-unquote, waste her savings in order to bless and prepare Jesus for a burial that will only be temporary. This lament is a gift, an utterly gratuitous display, even if it doesn't understand the whole of the story that it's, that it's in the middle of, that, how that story is going to turn out towards hope, how it's going to turn out in Jesus' resurrection. Mary's just getting him ready for a burial. Death, uh, this, this, this lament, it doesn't avoid death, but it moves right down into it. It sits right in death, and it moves through death. It sings a lament that slouches towards resurrection. In, in this Lazarus story, uh, before he raises Lazarus, he's greeted by a distraught Martha. We always have that. Mary-Martha dynamic. And Martha tends to have it all together. Martha's kind of our hero a little bit. She's already processed. She has her feelings a little too uh, fine-pointed, a little too formulated, a little too filtered and canned. She hasn't quite sunk into the reality, the depth of lament. Jesus tells her that her brother Lazarus will rise again. And Martha, being the pragmatic, realistic sister with her stuff together, she gives the proper theological formulation. Yes, this will happen in the resurrection on the last day, way out then. Jesus redirects her hope, though. He points at himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall live even though they may die. Whoever believes in me shall live, even though they may die. And then, and then Jesus models a sort of falling apart that has to happen before it all gets put back together. He visits Lazarus' graveside and he weeps. Jesus wept. We're shown in this account the uh, Ability for the as yet crucified and resurrected king to mourn towards hope. To lament towards resurrection. Jesus' tears in John 11 seem to water the ground for the new creation to pop up. Jesus intones a lamentation. Christ's sad, sad song is not one of despair. It's not one that deepens that spiral of hopelessness. It's one that sits deeply in it, that inhabits Sheol 
that goes down to the grave, to the depths, that descends to the dead in order to turn the tide towards eternal life for all of humanity. We're not only to learn from this, I think we are to learn from this, to, to fall into this pattern, to be unafraid to sing these sorts of songs to ourselves, to sing them to our friends, to sing them to our family when things happen, to sing them as a community and in this neighborhood, to sing them, if you're like David, uh, for our frenemies, people that we're not really sure if they're friends or enemies. But we're, to, we're also to sink deeply into the sort of graceful lament in death that leans into hope and resurrection. We're to find ourselves, each of us, all of us together, find ourselves inside of those tears of Jesus. Those tears that, that led to Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life. Even if, even if that was only a foretaste to Jesus being raised by God's spirit permanently back to life. We're to sink into those tears that empathize with Mary and Martha's trauma and tragedy. We're to be in those tears that ask us only to believe, to believe in him in order to have life, eternal life, even though we might bear death in our bodies. And we're to pledge allegiance to the man of sorrows, this, this singing, crying king. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these songs, these sad songs, that somehow seep into the cracks of this old world and, and break open a new creation. Help us sing these songs. Help, help them get deep down in us. Let us be uh, those sorts of people who, who sing the blues, but it's, it's, not because, it's not because we fear, and it's not because we're without hope, but it's because we're, we're leaning towards, we're leaning into resurrection and new creation. We're leaning into hope. Lord, we, we pray for those in our midst who, who are hurt, who suffer, who, who don't even have a song on their lips. Lord, let us mourn with those who mourn. Let, let us do it well. Let us, let us not rush that. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that man of sorrows who, who knows, knows our fears, knows everything about us, identifies with us, and, and brings us to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.